who edits the editors, or at least researches the way in which editorial process such as peer review affect the scientific literature. I'm Sophie Cook, one of the BMJ's research editors, and I've just been at the 8th Peer Review Congress which took place in Chicago last week. One of the things that anyone who submits research or analysis to the BMJ has to deal with is peer review. And the problems of the process and the potential solutions was a big part of the conference this year. I talked to one of the keynote speakers, Professor Lee Sabaro, who is Director of the Evidence Policy Influence Collaborative at the Charles Perkins Centre at Sydney University. She spends a lot of her time investigating the integrity of health research. Um, so Lisa, thanks for joining me today. Uh, I was really interested in your plenary the other day and I thought it would be great for our readers to hear a bit about the problems associated with peer review and just generally a bit more about what peer review means and, and why it matters. Um, I thought that first it would be really nice to, to find out from you what, you know, what do we mean by peer review and why, why is it important in the scientific community? Well, the quick answer to what we mean about peer review is that an article is sent out to a couple of people in your field or maybe some people who would actually use the article and they give you comments and then it's revised and if it's accepted, um, it's revised based on those comments. But that's the really simple answer and in looking at peer review, we find out it's actually very complicated and there's all these different models and people have different definitions for it. I think my favorite lately was a systematic review that was done on uh, open peer review and I thought open peer review meant when the authors knew who was doing the review and then the reviewers knew who the authors were. But evidently, in the systematic review, they found 100 and somewhat, I think over 150 definitions of mm. open peer review. Mm. There's quite a lot of confusion around the terminology that we're, that we're seeing. There is a lot of confusion, and there's a lot of new models being tested. So, you know, one journal might be using a slightly different model than mm. another. And I was, I was wondering, you know, there's, a, there's an assumption that peer review is sort of linked to quality, but is that necessarily the case or is that sort of quite a leap of faith? You mentioned sort of the leap of faith that we make when we talk about peer review. Yesterday. That's, of course, you know, the point of this Congress is we want to uh, link peer review to improving the quality of the medical yeah. literature, but I do think it's a leap of faith, and I think that's because we define quality in different ways. And if you think about quality in terms of uh, producing a paper that has a low risk of bias in its um, design and its conduct and its publication, I don't think we've developed that really firm link between peer review and quality. Because a lot of the innovations we're talking about, such as reporting guidelines, they're really important and they improve um, the reporting of the characteristics of the paper, but it's not really clear what peer review has to do with those. And actually, we learned at this conference that peer reviewers may not even be using those guidelines. And so I think it would be really great to focus peer review on some of the biases where we think peer review could actually have uh, a big contribution, or mm -hmm. some of the biases where uh, we basically haven't solved the problem yet. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a bit more about those biases. So what points in the peer review process can bias be introduced? What type of biases are we talking about? And what can journals and editors do to mitigate that? Well, I'm really talking about biases in the papers here. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, we have lots of different biases. We have biases in the whole um, way the questions are framed. We have biases in the reporting of the results. We have biases in the analysis, for example. Um, and then we also have biases related to conflicts of interest and funding sources of the paper. And we see those even when you control for the other methodological characteristics in the paper. And then we also have biases um, in relation to what we call spin, or the interpretation and presentation of data. And I think those last two areas, um, spin and conflicts of interest, are ones where peer review could have a real uh, contribution. Mm -hmm. 
And in terms of um, the, the conflicts of interest, what sort of is common practice among journals, you know, in terms of the peer reviewers? Does everyone ask for declarations or is it still sort of a bit murky? Are the waters murky? <laughs> yes, well, uh, almost everyone asks for declarations, but we know that there is a, a lack of reporting. Yeah. And uh, we also know that sometimes we get far too much information. We get long, long list of disclosures, mm -hmm. and we don't really know which of those might be conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. We also get disclosure of a lot of extraneous personal information, you know, about someone's career, perhaps. And then even uh, one of the interesting papers here is even when nothing is disclosed, it can be said in you know 60 different ways with mm -hmm. a lot of extra words. And so we're getting a lot more information, but it's not really helping us decrease the bias in the papers. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, um, just it, you know thinking of the role of peer review in that peer reviewer, even if a journal gets the disclosures, the peer reviewers uh, don't always get them. And I think that's something that peer reviewers uh, should always have access to. Yeah. In terms of, you know, obviously it's great to, to allow peer reviewers access to, to that information, but we're bombarding peer reviewers with a lot these days. Um, there's more information, you know, we're asking them about sort of lots of different files, not just the paper itself, and also things like conflicts of interest. I just wonder in terms of peer review, are we expecting too much at the moment of, of who we're asking? People are giving up their time, and, and, um, and I just wondered what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think this issue of too much information is a real problem, because a lot of the solutions we've been... Um, uh, putting forward to improve the quality of articles has involved giving people not only more on conflict of interest disclosures, but just more files, more data. And we've learned that a lot of peer reviewers don't even look at that. And frankly, doing a good peer review takes quite a bit of time. So it's quite reasonable that peer reviewers don't look at that. Mm -hmm. um, it might be very, very useful later when mm -hmm. methodologists or systematic reviewers want to get some extra data. Um, but I think we are asking a lot of peer reviewers if we expect them to use those supplemental files in their peer reviews. And frankly, um, the data shown here say it's not happening. Yeah. Yes. Um, in terms of sort of you know common common problems and risks associated with peer review, we've talked a little bit about some of those. Um, and also, I just wondered, as well as the amount of information that, that peer reviewers are, are being given, are there any sort of common frustrations that people talk about within the peer review community when they're asked to review a multitude of Tudor papers? Is there anything that comes across sort of consistently as a as a problem or a niggle that that they find difficult? Well, I think, and this is where the reporting guidelines have helped, is a lot of times what peer reviewers are looking for may not be in the paper. Mm -hmm. So if there's a reporting standard to begin with, that really helps peer reviewers because yeah. at least they can find uh, what they're looking for. I think that um, you know the volume of information even within a paper and plus the supplemental mm -hmm. files um, is something that peer reviewers have a hard time uh, dealing with, as I mentioned. Also, it's just even accessing that information sometime. Yeah. I think it's really interesting people can't even find the supplemental information and, and uh, don't know what to do with it. And I know that um, journals really vary in their use of checklists for peer reviewers themselves. And so if there's guidance for peer reviewers and if there's a checklist, um, that's much more uh, helpful to the peer reviewer. Okay. I'd like to go back a little bit. We talked a bit about the conflict of interest frustration, but also you mentioned the spin, and I was very interested when we were hearing about that. We've heard a lot about that over the last few days. Yes. What do we mean by spin? And, um, you know, it's, it seems like it's an increasing problem, and what can we do as a scientific community to try and mitigate that? 
Yeah, so spin is really the biased um, representation or presentation of somebody's findings to make them look more favorable. And what we found in a systematic review is there are so many ways that uh, people do this. So it's very hard to say exactly what the mechanism of spin is. So it can be through um, you know, the use of language. It can be through how the data are actually shown in a chart. There's a lot of different ways that people can spin their results, but the bottom line is it makes the results look better. And when I teach, um, I do workshops with consumers on how to critically appraise the literature. And when I talk about spin, and you can show them great examples of, say, an exaggerated effect of a drug study, you know, the first thing they always ask is, why doesn't peer review get that? You know, why doesn't peer review catch it? And I think it is hard for people to realize it, it's so obvious, the spin, once you're looking for it, um, that, you know, why don't peer reviewers catch it? And I think we need to do a lot more work in that area and maybe help peer reviewers um, and actually have a clear expectation for peer reviewers that they should look for spin. Yeah. And, you know, an, another idea is we can have multiple um, conclusions or multiple interpretations of a paper published either post-peer um, review or, or even, you know, before peer review. And so at least if there are different interpretations, uh, yeah. the reader would be able to see all of them. Yeah, and I think also it seems that, you know, it's it's something that we should all be alert to, not just peer reviewers, but journal editors as well, and people, everyone who's looking at a paper, I suppose. And, Absolutely. Uh, in order to make sure that we try and catch this and help the authors to, to, to sort of reframe where appropriate things to, so that the, the data support the conclusions that are being drawn. Yes, yes. I mean, we can't eliminate interpretation from research, and that's no. actually a good part of research, but I think we can really reduce the exaggeration of the benefits yeah. sometimes, yeah. It, you know, because science is you know, is a cumulative thing. Mm. And uh, one study is not going to give you the answer. No, no. And and working with them, um, you know, in, in, in a sense of journals, working with your press team, making sure that the messages are delivered sort of in a responsible way. Yes. I suppose that's another way that's, that's important for us to, to consider as a, as a community. Well, that's one of the interesting things for authors now. Once you get your paper accepted, mm. you get asked for all of this additional information now. And uh, you get asked for tweets and images and photos and web links and all of that are actually chances to spin your paper yeah. and nobody's peer reviewing yes. that. So I think we have to be really, really uh, careful about yeah. all those extra bits of information that come right, you know, at yeah. the end that of your publication. In. Absolutely. Yeah. There's less checkpoints for those. And I yeah. suppose that's something that we need to, to factor in. Thinking about going forward, we've talked about quite a few problems that are, you know, arising um, as a result of sort of peer review, the concerns that we have. What can we do going forward as a community, as journal editors, as peer reviewers to try and mitigate these problems and ensure good quality reviews? Well, I think let's talk about the, the two I'm most interested in right now, which are the conflicts of interest and spin. And I think for conflicts of interest, we can do a lot more uh, in terms of getting better information on um, through disclosed conflicts of interest, because we know that uh, we do have an under-disclosure, so I think journals could do a lot more to enforce that. And, and I would actually go so far as to say that if uh, journals catch someone who has not accurately disclosed that there would be some penalty uh, in the future, they maybe wouldn't be allowed to publish in that journal for a while. So, so I think a lot more could be done to make sure we get full and accurate disclosures and that those are um, available to peer reviewers and available actually to anyone who wants to read uh, the article. Mm -hmm. I think in the ideal world, um, it would be great if we could um, decrease some of those uh, financial ties um, that researchers have, and that's you know going to involve changes in in funding models and uh, changes, I'm sure, in collaborative uh, networks too. But mm -hmm. uh, that that would be a future goal. Okay. 
And what about spin? So for spin, I, I think just raising awareness of spin is uh, really one of the keys there. And to always be alert, whether you're a peer reviewer or a reader, um, that spin might be occurring. And um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, there's a couple um, models that people are even doing now with open peer review to publish multiple interpretations of a study. And I like that model, but I think we have to be really careful because we know that um, co conflicted individuals are often the ones who have the support to make those uh, comments. And so we don't want uh, multiple interpretations of a study to be dominated by um, a conflicted view. So, so there is a bit of a, a risk there. Okay. And finally, I just wonder, you know, in terms of peer reviewers, our, our listeners, some may have peer reviewed, some may not, some may be interested. And I wondered if there are any particularly helpful resources that you would direct people to in terms of peer review um, outside of, you know, what journals suggest independently from each other. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, there's, uh, doesn't BMJ have training resources we for do, peer reviewers? We do, yeah, yeah. yeah, and I think those are excellent. I haven't looked at them in a while, but I think if you've never peer reviewed yeah. going to some training, I think going to the types of guidelines for the article you're looking at, such as you would find through the journal or the yeah. um, uh, Equator Network. And I also think, I mean, for junior people, it's really great to talk to someone who has done peer reviews or who's yeah. do, done some editing in your institution to really get an idea of what, um, you know, the editors are yeah. looking Looking, are looking for and maybe to even now that we have more open peer review it's also great to look at peer reviews that others have written mm -hmm. and to look at peer reviews that you've gotten that you think have been really really uh, helpful because those can be a model for for your own peer review and I would certainly encourage people to do it it's just a great way to stay up on your field yeah. thank you Lisa thanks very much for joining me today you're welcome you've been listening to Lisa Berry talk about peer review if you've enjoyed this, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. We're in most places now. There you'll find over 200 episodes from our back catalogue, all available for free.